Okay, so today's Bible reading comes from Matthew 19, and so far it is verses 13 to 15. So I'll give you a couple seconds to either open up those leaflets or fetch the good old-fashioned Bibles. Okay, beautiful. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. I do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Well, that was quick, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. Now, I don't think you realized what just happened then. In saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, Jesus raised the topic of who's in and who's out. Now, I'm sure all of us can remember times when we felt anxious as we waited to see if we had been accepted, if we'd made the grade, made the cut, made the team, progressed to the final interview stage, been invited, um, and, and to see that we weren't amongst that group rejected, not chosen, deemed unsuitable, or left on the shelf. I remember at high school, uh, moving from year 11 to year 12, wondering if I was the school captain, right? And I remember the assembly where the captain was announced and the principal stood up and announced and it wasn't me. Oh, well, I thought there's still vice captain. And then in front of the whole school, the principal started talking in front of everyone about the fact that my dad had gone to the school and he, the principal, had once been my dad's PE teacher. It's me, I thought. And then he read out the name of my twin brother. And I thought that's not what was meant to happen, right? I'd been the prefect in year 11. He hadn't. I was the more popular one, I thought, right? <laughs> and just in that millisecond, I thought, oh, well, there's, there's position three, not all's lost, senior prefect. And then the name of someone else is read out. And I remember just thinking I've been working like for six years for this moment, which didn't happen. No, 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 no. That's not how it was meant to happen. I felt shocked, numb, trying not to look devastated in front of people. Um, and later on, I found out there were only two votes between my brother and myself, one vote between, you know, I was fourth. Um, so near, yet so far. And now I realize, of course, it absolutely doesn't matter at all. Right? Right, absolutely doesn't matter. But now we've just heard Jesus talk about a who's in, who's out issue that really does matter. The kingdom of heaven. That's the group you really want to be in. You don't want to be left out of that one. The kingdom of heaven is that one, in the book of Daniel we're told, which will last. It will grow to eclipse every other kingdom or any other grouping. And when inclusion means commendation from the king and worship around the throne, the heavenly throne, worship of the lamb, the son of man, and when inclusion means inheritance of the world in the new creation and exclusion means eternal punishment, eternal punishment, there is no greater status, no weightier rejection, no more desperate question than am I in the kingdom of heaven? So check the criteria. What sort of person is in that group? Is it a wealthy person? 
a person who's made it here? Is it a good person? Is it someone with the right pedigree, believing parents, you know, a church pastor, a missionary, um, someone more deserving? There's no more desperate question and there could be no more outrageous answer and I didn't hear that sharp intake of breath, which means me, me think you probably didn't process that right because taking a little child in his arms, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You're kidding, right? A little child. I mean, can you imagine trying that on another elite group, the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, the Harvard Business School of Management, the Australian Winter Olympic team? We don't care about musical accomplishments. We don't care about innate talent. We don't care about academic accolades or athletic prowess. We only accept those who are like children, or correction, little children. And yet Jesus says there's something about being childlike that is absolutely essential. That's the criteria. And we think, well, what is it? Think of a little child that you know, a little one. I want you to do that now. Picturing them in your mind. What do you think Jesus is saying you need to be like? Is it their innocence? Is it that they're forgiving? Is it that they're just happy in the moment, content? Is it that they're trusting? You know, a lot, a lot adds, uh, rides on getting the answer right. But don't fret, Matthew fleshes it out. After Jesus raises the question of who's in and who's out in six steps, Matthew takes us through the answer. The first step focuses on someone we'd admire and helps us realize it's not him or anyone such as him. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Thank you, David. Okay. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone, to, someone who is rich into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Right, this is a sad story, isn't it? Here's the negative example of someone who's not in the kingdom of heaven. Who's in? Not this guy. And the shock is he's a respectable man. He's wealthy, but he's not so blind with his wealth as to think that wealth is everything. He obviously knows it isn't. Otherwise, why else does he ask Jesus about eternal life? Okay, and he's not so proud to think that he knows everything. He is open to ask for advice and he's open to do it publicly. It's quite impressive. And he's moral. He's kept the main social commandments and yet he's also wanting to do more or at least to think about what extra good work maybe he could do. So what's the problem? Obviously, his love for wealth has a hold on his heart. 
And there's a wrong way of thinking that goes with that, that comes out in his question. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? It's all about merit for him. It's all about things he could do, what he could do that would, deserve, would then deserve a reward. And Jesus sees this straight away. Why do you ask me about what is good? I mean, it's valid in one sense, but what's going on in your mind that you're asking this? Your thinking is wrong. And then Jesus drills into this man's thinking to help him see the holes. Jesus says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, he said, first hole, right? That's his first hole. The problem with relying on doing good to enter heaven is you never know if you've done enough because how much is enough? And the only way you can rationalize the answer to that question is to whittle down how much you have to do to a manageable list of laws that you think you can keep. But it never works because we'll always wonder, is it enough? It isn't, and Jesus knows that. But Jesus plays the game. He wants the man to see his big blind spot. Now, he quotes, Jesus quotes out some commandments. When you look at them, he doesn't quote them all. And that's very interesting. It's interesting which ones he quotes. He quotes commandments five to nine plus love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, it's the treat people right commandments, which the man feels pretty good about. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, notably, this is important, Jesus leaves out commandments one to four, which are all about God and worshiping him only and not having idols in your life. And he leaves out commandment number 10, the do not covet commandment. All right, which kind of goes with these ones. This is the man's big blind spot because it's impossible to have the Lord as your God and worship him if you're consumed with coveting. Because making the Lord your God is first and foremost a matter of the heart and a matter of love. And there just isn't room enough in our hearts to love money and things and to love God as well. We can't do it. We all think we can, but we can't. We can't do it, we call ourselves moral. We say we obey the commandments and when you're challenged to list them off, we straight away go to the social ones. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, honor your parents. And we can't remember the first four, why? Because our greed makes us blind to God, you see. And so Jesus in his kindness, he exposes this man's basic blind spot. He says, if you wanna be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now Jesus, we note, doesn't say this to every person that he meets, but he says it to this man because this man's greed is, is his issue, this is his Achilles heel, it's what's stopping him loving God. To make the Lord his God, this man has to pull off the handbrake that is stopping him loving the Lord. The problem is he can't, and it's so tragic. And he goes away sad, he just can't let go of his possessions. Who's in? Not him, nor people such as him. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says it's easier to get a camel, which was the largest animal that they knew about back then. 
It's easier to get the camel through the smallest hole you could envision, the eye of a needle. It's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, for us, it's not just hard, it's impossible. And even though Jesus will go on to say, don't worry, all things are possible with God, nevertheless, he still said, it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that the case? It's because wealth is not a help and it's not neutral, it's actually a handicap to getting in. Now, that's the opposite of how we think, David. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, they're astonished. Why were they astonished? They're astonished because they thought that the wealthy people were the, tr- were the ones blessed by God. That's what we think, generally. And so, if, if they couldn't get in, well, what hope do the rest of us have? Who then can be saved, they say. Who's in and who's out? Wealth is a handicap to being in. Why? Because having wealth makes us believe merit theology. Because with wealth comes a sense of entitlement. Think about it for a moment. Either people are wealthy because they've worked hard and therefore think themselves entitled or deserving, or because they're wealthy because it's just come their way, in which case they think I'm entitled. I'm deserving. Either way, there's constant reinforcement that blessing in this life is the reward for those who deserve it. Now, apply that way of thinking to getting into the kingdom of heaven. We think either we deserve it because we've been good and we've tried hard enough, or we think we should just naturally be in. Jesus debunks that way of thinking. He says that way of thinking has as much possibility of success as the chance of squeezing the biggest animal you know through the tiniest hole you know of. It's impossible for that way of thinking to work. And if you think like that, we won't even see our lack of love for God. But neither will we be able to shake the feeling that there's still something we need to do. Jesus says the only way out of that very the very entrenched way of thinking is to do what's very, very hard, which is to wrench yourself out of greed's grip. Leave it, give it away. Now, the test for you and for me in wealthy Australia and wealthy Adelaide Hills as to whether we are thinking like this is whether we make it our practice constantly to give our money away and whether there's gladness in our hearts when we do it or a stinginess, that's the test. Do you, are you greedy? Well, do you give it away? That's the test. Who's in? There's one negative example, not him nor such as him, but then we have a positive example, David. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then would there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Who's in? Jesus says, you disciples, you've left everything. You're in. 
And your reward, he says, will be disproportionate to your sacrifice of what you've had to leave behind. At the renewal of all things, you're the ones who'll sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, amazing, right? Who's in? Well, not, you, not those you'd expect, because from a worldly point of view, the disciples, let's face it, they weren't impressive. They were uneducated fishermen with a Galilean country twang in their accent. They're yokels. They're not the ones we'd instantly, automatically place in the elite group. And yet when Jesus called them and said, follow me, straight away, they left their nets and they followed him. Who's in? It's those who put Jesus first. In fact, it's all those who put Jesus first. Everyone who has left family for my sake will receive a hundred times as much now and afterwards will inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus, good news, is no person's debtor. There's cost in following him, yes, but as well as that, there's gain from being in. Who's in? Jesus points to a little child and he says, such as these. Who's in? Not the rich man, nor such as him, who are unable to let go of possessions, who's in? The disciples are in, not the people we'd expect, it's those that put Jesus first. Which means those who are out are those we wouldn't expect. They're the moral, the good, the wealthy, the respectable, the people we'd naturally think we're in. That completely upends the way we think. Jesus says many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. It's turning things upside down. And to us, it seems so unfair, doesn't it? And if you think it doesn't, because maybe the words are familiar, first to last, last to first, or you haven't thought about them, listen carefully to this next story, and I want you to be sensitive to the strips of narrative bamboo Jesus shoving up your fingernails. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a, den a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay, it's the same conclusion, right? It's a brilliantly crafted story, but it rankles us it pushes our buttons, it brings out our sense of entitlement and, indeed, our outrage, because it seems so unfair, doesn't it? 
We hate queue jumpers. Like, you know, when you're on the freeway and there's roadworks ahead, everyone has to merge into one lane. You do it with all the other respectable drivers from the hills, and then someone comes and shoots past and just pushes in right at the front. You know, we hear the parable and we think, the person who worked longer should get more. Or if not, the person who worked less should get less, right? That's what we think. Now, apply that to who we think should be in or out of the kingdom of heaven. We think it's those who are deserving who should be there, not undeserving freeloaders, right? How can it be fair for someone to live a nasty, self-interested life, the whole of their lives, and then be led to Christ on their deathbed and be in the kingdom when other good people are left out? How is that fair? That's not fair. Let me tell you how God makes it fair. David. Now Jesus was going to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and a son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now we're not told how Jesus' death and resurrection will make God's inclusion of the undeserving fair. We are only told here the facts that it will happen. As to how Jesus' death makes things fair, that explanation comes out next when Jesus has to deal with a very ambitious mother with a massively overdeveloped sense of entitlement for her adult sons. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Every mother thinks their child is special, unique, but this mother takes the cake, doesn't she? <laughs> I mean, to sit at Jesus' right or left in his glory, talk about an ambitious mother. Jesus says, this has nothing to do with how special you think your boys are. He says, this is not even for me to grant. These places belong to those the Father has already chosen. The fact that the other disciples then get indignant shows that they think exactly the same. They know better than us. Why not us? It's the same way of thinking. I, I should be at the front because I'm as deserving as the next person. I'm entitled as well. Now, this speaks to us. You might have worked away at a job, in a job for years, trying your hardest you know, longing for recognition so that when the promotions, the rewards, the benefits are announced, it's given, well, to the new person who's, who's not even worked in the company. 
I've experienced that. It gets under your skin. But it's completely the wrong way of thinking. There is no entitlement. It's the wrong way to think. And the proof, of course, is Jesus. I mean, if anyone was entitled to adulation, to, to reward, to, to greatness, to, to worship, it's him. What do we remember at Christmas time? He laid that entitlement aside, didn't he? He took on human flesh. The king of kings, born not in a palace but in a barn, placed not in you know, an ivory crib but in a smelly feeding trough. He grew up surrounded not by the trappings of wealth but by that of poverty because he came, how did he put it? He came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How, is it, how can it be fair that God includes people who don't deserve it? The answer is because Jesus makes it so. That's how God can include you and me. Because we're not deserving, are we? None of us, none of us. In um, that book down there, I'll just get it. It's my visual illustration, okay. This little book. Uh, which is on sale at Kurong now, Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity. Ben Shaw, the author, he's a friend of mine. I studied with him at Bible College. He died this year. He got cancer of the jaw. He died just after this was published. Um, he summarizes the Bible's teaching of our problem. He says this, in moral terms, we're corrupt, immoral, and essentially evil. In navigational terms, we're lost and we've wandered from the path. In relational terms, we've flirted with evil and played the harlot and committed spiritual adultery. In medical terms, we're blind, deaf, leprous, paralyzed, and even dead. In hygiene terms, we're unclean, dirty, polluted, and stained in our hearts. In judicial terms, we all stand guilty in the divine courts of justice. And in financial terms, we've all racked up an insurmountable debt that we can never pay because, and because of this, we're all spiritually bankrupt. That's how the Bible describes our problem. And this is why any thought of entitlement or deservedness is completely misguided. And yet here's the thing, at every point, Jesus meets us in our need. Morally, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Navigationally, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Medically, by his wounds we are healed. Hygienically, by his blood, he cleanses us and washes us from our sin. Judicially, God justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus' death. And financially, as Jesus says here, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom payment for many. He paid the debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And friends, that's how God can include the undeserving, you and me. 
We who have no claim to entitlement whatsoever, it's not about us. It is all about the gracious decision of our Heavenly Father and the grace and mercy he offers us in his Son. Which two men are able to see in our last reading, David. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. I'm so glad this story is here. The blind men enable us to see, ironically. They and the crowd who tell them to be quiet know that these men are undeserving of Jesus. But though blind, they see what we who can see are blind to. They see themselves. They see that they're in absolute need. They need God to be merciful to them. That's what they see. They see it so clearly. I mean, there's no other reality that they're living with. And then they see Jesus clearly, that he is God's agent of mercy to them. And so when they heard Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And when they're rebuked and they're told to be quiet, they don't care. All the louder, they shout and called out and cried out for mercy. And Jesus heard them. And instead of walking by, he stops. And he has compassion on them. And in touching their eyes, they experienced the touch of God and they were healed and they followed he who became their life and their savior and their Lord. What about you? Do you see? Do you see that you have no claim on the kingdom of heaven, no entitlement, that you're not naturally in? Do you see yourself that what you need is mercy, not reward? That you need to be like the blind men calling out for mercy? That you need to be, what? Like a little child who calls out for help because they know they have needs and they know that they can't do it themselves. So they naturally call out for help. Do you see God that he has the right to extend mercy to whoever he asks, but that also he is a God of compassion and grace to everyone who looks to him in their need. Do you see Jesus, God's agent of mercy to you, who paid his life so that you could be brought from outside the kingdom to in? Who's in? Who's out? Well, who's out are they like the rich man, such as him, who cannot stop thinking in terms of entitlement and so will fail to call out to Jesus? Who's in? Those such as little children who know their need and call out to him in desperation because he alone is their salvation. We cannot ever move beyond this. Rachel, come and lead us in prayer.